Hello and welcome to Ukraine Without Hype, where we look at the biggest news stories from Ukraine and the region. I'm Anthony Bardaway and we'll be flying solo today. Now it's been a while since we recorded our last podcast. We sort of went on our August hiatus, like most things do in this country, and simply never came back for a while. Now it was always the intention to return, but it was the closure of the Kiev Post recently that really highlighted how there was a severe lack of media attention to Ukraine in the English language, and really inspired us to get back into the game, as it were. As we're relaunching this time, we have a few goals in mind. For one, we are going to try to be less scripted. We felt as though there's basically two types of podcasts. One of them is basically your your scripted radio shows, your This American Life's and such. And then there were just the, the pure discussion. And we felt that we did not have the resources to fully delve into the side of being 100% scripted and, and tightly produced and such. So we'll try to bring information in a slightly more scripted way, but before it was just too much. It didn't sound natural, and we're going to try to improve on that in the future. Uh, next, we are going to try to bring on more guests. We know plenty of people. We hope we can get them in. Although scheduling is always difficult, we feel that it would be much more important to bring in other voices besides just our own. So there's more of a diversity of thought. And we're also going to try to move towards some kind of monetization model. So we do not have a Patreon yet, but we're going to aim to get one going in January, we believe. So yes, our goals for the future is to just, again, get back in the game, be reliable bi-weekly at first, but that might expand to things. We have some ideas kicking around as to use the platform for other projects as well, reach out to more experts in our in our various circles and beyond that, and to really get this going as a more efficient, dialed-in product, media product for you. Now for this week, I felt like it would be a good idea to go over some of the news stories that we missed in the intervening months since our last episode. So I'm not going to go too far into detail on any single one of these, but they're all ripe for future content, future episodes that might get into more detail. But for now, just going through them without dwelling too much on each one, just to get as many of the ideas that have been kicking around in our brains since the last episode out into the public. So without further ado, here we go. The biggest story on everyone's mind in Ukraine and how the rest of the world is seeing Ukraine right now has to do with the buildup of Russian military forces just outside of the Russian-Ukrainian border and in the case of Crimea and Donbass within Ukrainian borders. Now, the main problem I have with a lot of these stories is that it's always framed as if Russia invades, which is an absurdity. Russia already invaded. Russian troops are currently in Ukraine. And even in the case of uh, local Donbass militias, they're largely run and directed by Russian officers and the command structures within the Russian army. So drop that if. Russia invaded. They might invade more. But what are the details of this? Well, there's reportedly 100,000 Russian soldiers and counting. Um, some intelligence reports are coming out saying that the number will top off closer to 170,000, 200,000. Now, what makes this different from the episode we did on the Russian military buildup in the spring 
is that they're doing this much more secretively. Um, a lot of the open source intelligence ways of tracking these things, such as tracking the Russian train system, which before was a fairly easy thing to do. Some researchers have reported that they're losing access to that. A lot of the movement is happening at night, which is concerning. It's harder to see what they're doing, which makes it look more real. But what's the flip side of that? Where are some arguments against why they're not going to invade? Well, for one, some military observers are saying that the way the types of things they are building up are not exactly what you would do in an invasion. I've heard some people say that on the larger strategic operational level, they are missing some of the assets that you would expect an army to be gathering for that kind of thing. Now, I myself am not a military analyst, so I can't very much weigh in on that. I feel that's very, <laughs> that's well outside the bounds of what I've been trained in but just relaying it to you. Now, what Russia really likes to do is find out where the red lines are, go just a little bit over them, and count on the Europeans and Americans to be the cautious ones and back down in favor of some kind of political settlement. And the messaging from America and the Europeans has been somewhat mixed on this. As I'm recording this, there was just a phone call between President Zelensky and President Biden. There's the standard, you know, general assurances. There's been some rumors that the Americans are asking Ukraine to basically accept uh, some kind of special status for Donbass, which is what the Russians are asking for, but would be a complete disaster for the country, quite frankly. But that's not confirmed, so I'm not going to rely on that yet. Anyway, uh, some of the Europeans have been much stronger than in the spring. France especially really seems like it is acting tough on this issue, which is appreciated. So it doesn't quite seem like Russia is getting the immediate political concessions that it might have been wanting. The other, of course, being over Nord Stream, we'll talk about that. But the Nord Stream 2 pipeline was delayed in the German political process, and that's it's probably something else that they want to get some kind of concession over in a minimal way. They are saying that Ukraine can't join NATO, which is quite a far way off at this point, that they don't want NATO missile bases with Ukraine, which aren't even in discussion right now, and are generally just making a stink over the threat that NATO poses to Russia without any real impetus for it. It's not much in the way of any inciting incident. They just kind of came up with this and were just supposed to accept their temper tantrum. But this will be a developing story. In between now and the time of the next episode, I will be going to Donbass for a bit and I'll report back on what I see there. But for now, the Russian military is parked right on Ukraine's border and the analysis that I find most convincing is that they're likely to stay there for a long time because Russia can afford a prolonged mobilization and Ukraine cannot. They're probably hoping that they'll eventually scare the West and Ukraine into something at some point within the next few months. We'll just have to pay very close attention. The next story of international import has to do with the migrant crisis in Belarus, the Belarusian and Polish borders, and with Lithuania as well. The story is that the president of Belarus, Lukashenko, essentially staged a migrant crisis with Poland by advertising to Iraqis and 
mostly Iraqis, but some other countries as well, that they will be able to enter Europe, mainly to go to Germany through Belarus. So these groups of, large, again, largely Iraqi refugees were taken to the Belarusian-Polish and Belarusian-Lithuanian borders and brought up against the border fences and not allowed back. They were more or less pushed through the border fences into Polish territory, and the Polish border guards, doing something entirely illegal, in many cases pushed them back into Belarus. Now, for quite a few weeks, this back and forth continued. Migrants were pushed out of Belarus into Poland and from Poland back into Belarus, leaving them stranded in essentially the forested borderland in between the two. Some were able to make it deeper into the EU. Many, unfortunately, died in the woods from exposure. It was a it was cold in the winter and they did not have the, uh, everything they needed to survive. Overall, in extremely tragic thing to see happen. Now, in my view, the reason why Belarus use this as their weapon against Poland is that the current Polish government under the PIS party has used the assumed threat of refugees as a way to justify all kinds of anti-democratic actions. Who We can go over what those are in a very long time from shady ways of passing budgets to controlling the courts. And every time they've received criticism over it, they said they basically presented it as, oh, they are the ones who are having a tough immigration policy in order to protect Europe from outsiders. But in the meantime, most of the criticism of the Polish government wasn't even over that. That's what they want the criticism to be of, is a lightning rod of criticism for them. And it on its own is pretty bad, but is then used to distract from other very bad things. Now, this crisis is ongoing, but Belarus has shipped many people back to Iraq by now. Seeing this um, experiment as having been played out, the damage has been done, and desperate refugees were the ones who were used like ammunition in that fight. Whew. Now I'm depressed, but moving on to Nord Stream. The Nord Stream 2 pipeline is a pipeline that goes underneath the Baltic Sea from Russia to Germany. We've discussed this a bit before. The Biden administration had lifted its sanctions on the project when the pipeline was already something like 95% complete. Like it was done. It was virtually done when these sanctions were lifted. And it is completely done now. But its status is still in limbo because the German government has decided that the official ownership of the company behind Nord Stream doesn't quite match with German ownership laws. Um, without going into the bureaucratic aspects of that, essentially now the Nord Stream, the companies running Nord Stream need to make a subsidiary that can function for its purpose in Germany. But there are some things that could still stop it. The new German government that was voted in recently includes the Green Party, and the Green Party has many reasons to be against the pipeline. One, they're the Green Party. They're a party that believes environmentalism and natural gas pipelines, oil pipe pipelines in general, tend not to be good for the environment. They often rupture and cause massive tragedies that wipe out entire ecosystems. 
Well, on the political side of things, the Greens are also the party within Germany that is most friendly towards Ukraine and most hostile towards Russian encroachment in Eastern Europe. So on both the Green Party's foreign policy and environmental priorities, Nord Stream's an obvious target. Now, the question is if they have enough clout in the government in order to take it down when essentially the entire German industrial lobby really needs that pipeline. Russian gas heats German homes in its winter. Now, the pipeline that takes most of that gas at the moment runs through Ukraine. Russia wants to bypass Ukraine as a carrier. Now, they have said that isn't their goal, but really, come on. <laughs> That's, that seems like it's an argument used you can use a lot with uh, stated Russian priorities, but really, come on. Now, Ukraine, on Ukraine's side of things, one, it needs the, the transit fees um, using the pipeline. Ukraine gets paid for that, which it makes up a pretty hefty portion of the public budget. And also in the geopolitical sense, having that pipeline there is something of a deterrent of Russian aggression because to invade Ukraine too vigorously would mean putting that pipeline in physical jeopardy. Or Ukraine just turning it off. For the Germans, for their part, have said that they put politics and commercial interests separately, which is completely ridiculous, especially when talking about energy. Energy is the most political business out there. And then Russia has already begun tampering with the gas supply. So the exact same thing that they were that Europeans were warned about is, of course, happening now. Surprise. And my final internationally focused story has to do with Afghanistan. Of course, the United States withdrew from Afghanistan and the Taliban swiftly took over afterwards. Now, the big story of the withdrawal was just getting everyone out who needed to get out fleeing from the Taliban. Hindsight is 2020, but that effort ended up doing a lot better than many thought it would. Many people were, were evacuated. Um, unfortunately, not enough, but many people were. And at least some of that, you can thank Ukraine for. Uh, not Ukraine didn't exactly ha have the most resources, but they were very proactive in evacuating people from Kabul airport, including one mission where they went into the city fully armed as a show of force in order to bring people to the airport for evacuation. Now, there's still some Ukrainians that were left behind, but within that story, overall story of tragedy, that bit of heroism of the Ukrainian soldiers to go into the fallen city of Kabul to bring people out into safety is somewhat inspiring. The geopolitical aspects of this were, however, a bit less inspiring. Ukrainians watched an American ally fall, and while they're a whole mess of differences between the situation of the Af Afghan government and of the Ukrainian government, it did somewhat shake the image of America's reliability. The main thing I heard from Ukrainians and Ukrainian soldiers especially is them saying, well, yes, the Americans leaving Afghanistan was, turned out to be a catalyst for the fall of Afghanistan. But we, Ukrainians, we're the ones who are fighting by ourselves, so we don't really rely on American support anyway. So, and really, by now, that has all faded into the background. And that fading into the background is something that concerns me about the lessons of Afghanistan. Uh, the If you go around Ukraine, which I've done quite a bit of, and even some small towns, you'll run into 
monuments to the Soviet war in Afghanistan that many Ukrainians as an element of the Soviet Union took part in. And these monuments, unlike the World War II monuments, are very sad. <laughs> they are often much more mournful, grave-like. Not always, especially when they're in the form of, you know, international fighters, but often, yes. And the image of the Afghan veteran was something that lingered well through the 90s, 2000s. But now, just a few months out of the end of the American war in Afghanistan, it seems to have vanished from public discussion almost entirely. Really, within a couple of weeks, it was done with. And I know people were done with Afghanistan by probably about 2010, but we're not sitting with our mistakes on that. Oh, another one. Now for our domestic stories, stories that mostly have to do with the internal politics and relations within Ukraine. So in late November, President Zelensky had a press conference where he announced that there was a planned coup against the Ukrainian government plotted by some intelligence officers working in collaboration with the Russian government. And going further with the accusations, he said that the wealthiest man in the country, Renat Ekmetov, who himself is certainly not without issue, took part in the coup attempt. Now Zelensky and Akhmetov have been feuding, but this is a pretty big escalation of that feud. Though it seems as though the administration has backed down from this specific accusation. Now he was widely mocked for this uh, when the date of the coup came and gone. It was something of a joke. Now the counter-argument to that is obviously, well, if they caught it, then obviously there wasn't a coup. I don't want to linger on that too much. The thing that really drew the criticism there was that for the conference, only a certain number of journalists were allowed to go. There was not, to my understanding, there was not an open application process. It was more invitation only. And this fits a pattern of the president's office of being quite standoffish and hostile with the press. It has frequently been the case that only certain journalists are invited to have coverage um, independent media has been almost entirely ignored and treated like it doesn't exist. And while I'm not against this decision, the media holdings of oligarch Medvedchuk have been um, heavily sanctioned and banned from air. But again, long story, that wasn't exactly a terrible decision. Saborona Media, a small independent outlet, has had to go through great lengths to re-register as a formal media outlet, as opposed to formally being an NGO because of demands made by the government to have very specific type of certification, which the law doesn't actually say you need to have. So lots of little tricks to keep Zelensky at a distance from the press. But he also singled out a very specific journalist, Yuri Batosov. Now, Yuri is a very vocal anti-Zelensky journalist in the proud tradition of Ukrainian journalists who also double as activist figures. It has been quite a bit of a thorn in the side of the administration. And just as he's been even more of a nuisance for them, a video was released of him shooting a howitzer, which for a journalist is something you absolutely cannot do. Huge no-no. You are not a combatant. 
we fired this howitzer and said it was revenge for the Holodomor. Apparently this is an old video, but it is currently being investigated. But because it's an old video, it seems much more as it's an excuse just to crack down on him. So on one side you have, yes, he did something very, very bad. On the other, kind of convenient that this evidence of doing that bad thing is happening right when Zelensky might want him out of the way. Uh, press freedom is definitely a topic that we will refocus on at a later time because it is quite pressing. And speaking of some um, misdeeds by Zelensky, the Pandora Papers were released in the time since our last episode. A extremely large investigation by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. And within this consortium is the outfit Info which has a very strong reputation for investigative journalism within Ukraine. They're a part of it as well. They re this investigation contained nearly 12 million documents, which showed many political leaders around the world uh, stowing their cash away in offshore accounts. It is in many ways a expansion on the Panama Papers, which you may have heard of. And Ukraine had the unfortunate distinction of having one of the most or the most number of politicians named, including Zelensky. But to make sure this is very much not a partisan issue, his predecessor, President Poroshenko, was named in the Panama Papers. So every Ukrainian president gets its scandal of hiding their money away. But this is another story that disappeared quite quickly, and I don't hear much about the Pandora Papers anymore, even though it's ultimately not been that long since they were released. Let's move to on to some of the bright spots of what's happening in Ukraine that make me much more happy about the future. One, we'll do our far right update. And usually when talking about the far right, you have to roll your eyes and say, oh no, what now? But in this case, there's been some very considerable um, advances. Now, in one of our last episodes, we talked about the resignation of Arsene Novakov and how he was the main protector of various far-right groups within the country. He's gone, and they lost their protection to a great degree. Shortly after he had resigned, there was a raid in Kharkiv where three members of the Azov movement were arrested for racketeering, running an organized crime group. Almost immediately afterwards, Azov movement groups kind of descended onto the presidential administration, claiming that... This was an attack on patriotic forces who are there to protect the country, and by getting rid of them, you are setting up for an authoritarian takeover. But no one really listened to them, so it's fine. Also, in the way of the Azov network taking very serious blows, uh, Sergei Koroktik, the Belarusian-slash-Russian neo-Nazi that was working for the Azov movement, he was recorded as essentially admitting that he was a Russian intelligence asset, something that had been an open secret. Meanwhile, another, uh, Rodin Batulin, who was a co-founder of Belarusian House, was banned from the country on national security grounds. He was an associate of Vitaly Shishov, who was assassination we talked about. And, well, Batulin and Krotkik probably did it. <laughs> they, 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 they probably were involved in some way. And while there was not a actual crackdown against them, this is very much a signal that they did not have the backing of the, <laughs> the Ukrainian government on that. And they are seen as much more of a threat than they used to be. Now, in general, the far right has taken some serious hits. Um, also, since the beginning of COVID, it's been much harder for them to organize one of their main one of Azov's main ways of organizing, of 
getting recruits is something called the Cossack House near Maidan. It's like a cultural center. They have restaurants. MMA fights, etc. That has been shut down and has not really gotten gone yet. And in many ways, they are much weaker now than they have almost ever been. And as the power of Azov, whatever they had, has been chipped at, and without Avakov there, there's been something of a realignment happening where some of these far-right groups feel they need to get something going in order to keep attention on themselves. Much like a child throwing a tantrum. And this childish tantrum has taken the form of attacking nightlife, especially LGBT-friendly nightlife, in the Podil neighborhood of the city, which is, you know, the hip, trendy, bar district kind of place. There have been several locations such as this that have been attacked. Thankfully, it seems as no one has been hurt too severely, for a while, anyway. It's something to worry about in the future, but is ultimately an expression of weakness on their part, not of strength. And as I rally the joy in my voice as I say that, I'll talk about something else that really uplifted me in the time since then, and that's the Crimea platform meeting. We had talked about it a bit before the hiatus, and I said there'd be an update, and then we went on hiatus. This conference was attended by very high-level representation. Um, most of Ukraine's immediate neighbors and within the vicinity sent their presidents or prime ministers. Others sent foreign ministers, but again, very high level. And the idea was how you keep the issue of Crimea on the table and how to support the people who were affected by the Russian invasion of Crimea, especially the Crimean Tatar community. And the main t track that Ukrainian government has done for this is to focus on cultural rights, supporting media, soft power. The only weird moment in the conference uh, was when the Hungarian representative spoke, and it was worded in such a way that you could tell that what they were really talking about was the rights of Hungarian minorities in Transcarpathia region, which I felt was not entirely appropriate for the conference they were at, especially considering the fact that Hungary has been blocking Ukrainian-European integration on the grounds that uh, Hungarians in Ukraine are not treated the way that Hungary would like them to be. And I would definitely like to dig more into that in the future because there are a lot of minority rights issues that have to be addressed, but time and place. It was, it, it just felt odd. And I, and I think everyone else realized what was happening. And notably, this was attached to the 30th Independence Day of Ukraine, which was wonderful. Now, the Crimea platform is also connected to the indigenous rights bill that we talked about but also something similar in the same vein as that that had happened since then is a bill that was passed that makes anti-Semitism illegal or much more illegal than it used to be. It largely used the definition of anti-Semitism used by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance and added additional punishments for things such as vandalism or anti-Semitic attacks. So in the legal sphere, Ukraine has made quite a few uh, steps forward when it comes to the rights of some of the national minorities in Ukraine. But again, I would like to focus more on that in the future because it is a very, very interesting topic to me. Finally, some of our cultural and other miscellaneous topics. And we have to, of course, start with what's going on with coronavirus shutdowns. Just because I felt it needs to be said. The country is largely open now. 
Not that it has ever been that closed, but at least in the capital, they are taking vaccine cards and such much more seriously than they used to. I now carry around my vaccine large piece of paper, not exactly a card. I have a large piece of paper for it, though Ukrainians have an app called Dia, which it's on. I've heard I could use that as it doesn't matter. So, for example, right now I am going through renewing my residency permit. And one of the requirements was in addition to bringing my old paperwork with me, I also had to bring my vaccination records. Now the level of vaccination in Ukraine generally is still quite low, but since these restrictions have been put in place, they've increased quite drastically. And that's good because there was also Hanukkah. Now I am Jewish, which is one reason why I might have been so happy to talk about the passing of the anti-Semitism law. But it's very nice to see that even more than in previous years, really, the public displays of Hanukkah really show how far Ukraine has come from what many um, Ukrainian Jews that immigrated to the U.S. see as the bad old days, where in the Soviet Union and in the years after independence, showing yourself as Jewish was considered quite taboo because you could get beat up, you could face uh, anti-Semitism. But now... You go to the major squares of Kiev, and really most major cities and a lot of minor cities are having these Hanukkah displays and Han- and Hanukkah lightings, in many cases full-on parties to go along with them that show how far things have come in the name of acceptance. There were a handful of incidences of people vandalizing Hanukkahs. In some of them, it was just normal petty vandalism. Some of them, you could tell it was much more anti-Semitic reasoning behind it. But the police were were pretty reactive to that. And for example, one person who faced uh, Hanukkah in Dnipro was arrested almost immediately. The holiday is now over, but good times. Our last story is the reason why there will be much more focus placed on making this podcast the best it can be, and that is the closing of the Kiev Post. Well, the closing of the good Kiev Post. Now, the former staff of the Kiev Post have reformed under a different name the Kiev Independent, and they are, have told their own story in many uh, outlets, and they have, have even have their own podcast on the story of the fall of the Kiev Post. So go listen to that and Kiev Independent for the direct story, but I'll tell a shortened version. It Kiev Post was purchased by the Odessa real estate developer Adnan Kivan, who had promised to maintain the independence of the outlet, which is for those that don't know the the major, which is for those that don't know the main English language news source in the country. If you're a major international business, if you are an embassy worker you're familiar with the Kiev Post. So he promised that he would help he would maintain the paper's independence, but apparently he kind of gave off bad vibes about that <laughs> according to some of the journalists that were there. And those bad vibes turned out to be true. He attempted to essentially eliminate the independence of the Kiev Post. The staff fought back on him on that. And they were all fired. Now, the Kiev Post is apparently being relaunched under new management, but it has lost really all of its credibility at this point. An outlet is only as good as its journalists, and it decided to spit in those journalists' faces. The staff now is now working on a project called the Kiev Independent, 
They've had a remarkably successful fundraising campaign thus far. They have in a media environment where paying for news is not the standard. They very quickly amassed many, many patrons on Patreon. Last I looked, they were were pledged something like $7,000-something a month, which is not enough yet, but they're making good gains. So overall, it looks like the old Kiev Post will still exist in the form of the Kiev Independent. They've received a tremendous amount of support. Love to see it but it will still never have the amount of resources that it once did. And so here we are trying to help the health of the English language Ukrainian journalism ecosystem a bit, but do it in our own way with our own voice. We all have our own strengths and weaknesses, and we hope to supplement both of them. So Kiev Independent, glad to support you. Those are our stories for the week. Thank you so much for listening. As I was saying it, you might have heard myself getting kind of worn down with the bad stories. I want to say that there will hope I I really want to focus more on some of the positives, cover some of the reform efforts, decentralization, um school improvement, military refurbishment. So as much as we may be downers, and it's very important to tell those stories, a news outlet that only tells the good is leaving a whole lot out, and if they do that, you have to question why. But thinking out loud, it really is good to tell the story of, quite frankly, why we love and support Ukraine so much. And if we don't explain the things that make us feel that way, then it's hard to get our audience to feel that way as well. But anyway, thank you for listening. We are bi-weekly for now, so listen to us again in two weeks. Again, by then, I will have be coming back from Donbass and will hopefully have something meaningful to say about it. But in the meantime, stay safe, follow the news. And Slava Ukraini.